powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show! Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy, guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Wow, what a welcome. Thank you, thank you. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. I am your host, Derek, and I am completely thrilled that you've decided to land on my doorstep. With the infinite choices out there, word of mouth about this show has been vital into getting the following we have been growing since day one. We are now in 17 countries and now in Russia. So let me say, Dabro Pashalovit no Mayoshi Tavarashi. So what's been going on with me these last two weeks? Well, I want to tell you I've been doing okay. Mrs. Duval and I are both vaccinated, so we're able to do things we used to do, like go to dinner and such. A week ago, we held a belated birthday party for me and my hetero life mate, Money Chris. And we were joined with other vaccinated friends for one hell of a good evening. Get vaccinated. It's worth it. If you're an astute follower of the Derek Duval Show on social media, you will notice we have a strong presence on Twitter, but we are lacking in the old gram department. We are aware, and we are making sure we start utilizing that important tool. Be sure to find us by typing in Derek Duvall Show. We have recorded some incredible interviews in the last few weeks. I don't want to spill the beans on some of them, but believe me, they will be can't-miss episodes. So, here we are, episode 17. You must be asking yourself, Derek, who do you have in store for us? Well, allow me to impress you. We have 70s music icon, singer of the hit song, Magnet and Steel, Mr. Walter Egan is here with us. This is a truly insightful interview with discussions about his upbringing, first forays into music, the inevitable meeting with Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, the hit song, and so, so much more. So, let's not waste any more time. As I always say, let's just jump straight into it. Welcome to the show, direct from Franklin, Tennessee, the one and only Mr. Walter Egan. Walter, good afternoon. How are things in your world? You know, I'm doing pretty well, Derek. How are you? Oh, not bad. I start off my interviews with the same question I ask everyone in this strange moment of human history. How has the COVID-19 world been treating you? Well, I think on a, uh, on a grand scale, I'm doing actually all right through the COVID. Um, you know, it's kind of a taste of what retirement must feel like for people. Um, you know, the hardest part has is, is been, uh, you know, abstaining from live shows, performing, you know, that that is uh, been tough. But otherwise, I've kind of I'm kind of a homebody. And uh, actually, the amazing part of the quarantine and the lockdown and everything at the beginning of it in March of 2020, I had a dream about a friend of mine who used to put out some of my records in England. And I uh, texted him about that, thinking how funny it was. It was about a helicopter being suspended outside his apartment window on like the 10th floor or something. Anyway, 
it turned out he was just, you know, reactivating his uh, record label. And I had given him some, uh, you know, CDs with my my latest tunes when I saw him a year ago in Liverpool. We were playing at the Cavern Club. Anyway, and it was this one album that uh, that he really liked and he wanted to put it out. And, and so basically the uh, carrot dangling in front of me through this entire quarantine has been the album that just got released uh, about a month ago called Fascination. And so, you know, I, I would have to say it's been not so terrible, my COVID experience. I'm, like I said, I'm glad that you got through pretty unscathed. That's, that's some of our guests have not been so lucky. Sure. Yes, you, you were born in Queens, New York in the late 40s. Uh, what's it like growing up in New York during the 50s? Um, I think it was really good. It was, uh, it, in many ways, it's not the uh, the center of the uh, the universe. <laughs> mm -hmm. The uh, it it certainly was a, a great, interesting place to be, if only for the baseball fan in me. I was a little league player, and I harbored dreams of being a professional player for a while. I, you know, I, I was pretty good at sports, and so the Yankees, Dodgers, and Giants being there through the fifties was uh, really kind of fun you know so you know and and new york has so much to offer uh and in culture you know and and so you can just almost have to absorb it without having to try you know it's just kind of all around you there and it's also a, you know a, you know a little scary place in some ways but growing up there being in new york it's really a series of neighborhoods and neighborhoods are the same in small towns or in, in big towns. If, if you get to know the people that you see every day, you know? So would you say you're a Yankees, Mets or Dodgers fan? Well, a little bit of all of those, I think mm -hmm. that's the other good part of it for the uh, expatriate of New York is that uh, you get a chance, get more opportunities to root for a team later on in the season but yeah the yankees were always my my team growing up and then the dodgers when i moved to la in the early 70s and you know and i've carried the dodgers pretty much through until now where i live outside of nashville so it's funny you say that um here in tulsa where i record um the farm team for the dodgers is uh, the tulsa drillers and All right. you get some of the guys, you get some of the majors who come down, you know, they've been hurt or they needed rehab or, or just, you know, sometimes they just get knocked down. You see some, some pretty damn good athletes come through here. Um, and of course we've had, before he passed away, we had Tommy Lasorda down here on the regular. So, oh yeah. yeah. Lasorda, what a fixture he was. Mm -hmm. It's hard to believe that he's gone, you know? Yeah, um, it, a lot of us by surprise, but I mean, then you think about it, you know, he was, you know, old and, you know, had hell of a, he lived a hell of a life, you know what I mean? Yeah, he always seemed vital, though, you know, and I did a gig a few years ago at a, it was kind of a private party. And lo and behold, in the, in the crowd and the, in the people that were there was Vin Scully. Mm. And it was just a, a real thrill for me to meet him. Because, uh, you know, his voice 
is just so identified with the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so. it's, it, it, there's not many, um, I mean, obviously you've got um, Harry Carey and you've got uh, Euchre, who I adore yeah. uh, being a major. Yeah, Euchre's great. Euchre's <laughs> great, yeah. But yeah, well, we like had said, some good ones in New York, too. We had Mel Allen with the Yankees and Phil Rizzuto. And, uh, you know, it was, it, uh, it was some pretty good years there. But, yeah, the Dodgers had uh, Jerry Dunphy and uh, Vin Scully. And that was uh, the pair. They, they were – when I first – the same time when I drove out to L.A. for the first time in 74, as I was getting close, when I think I was going through Arizona probably at the time, I started to pick up Dodger games, you know, with Vin Scully's name. And it was like this siren call coming to L.A. It was, it was very – you know, a very magical moment for me. So as you're growing up, at what point did you decide, you know, you want to attend uh, the prestigious Georgetown University? <laughs> you know, I went to a Jesuit high school, which was uh, Loyola in Manhattan. And um, so in those days, Georgetown, I think, was a little sleepier than it's become over the years. And so you know, there were a lot of Loyola graduates that went to Georgetown, but, uh, you know, I applied to a couple of Ivy League schools, which I didn't get into. I applied to um, Middlebury up in Vermont, and I got into Middlebury, and I got into Georgetown. So it was a choice between going off into the hills or going into the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, being a city boy, I, I kind of opted for the city. And so did, uh, you know, Fortunately, most of the members of my high school band. So, so we continued the band once we got to Georgetown, yeah. and that band actually had continued through a number of years with a different name, called Sageworth when I was in college. But it was the Malibus when I was in high school. Mm. See, I did not know that. I was Sageworth was going to come later in the interview, but I did not know that he was by another name uh, earlier on. That's that's interesting. Yeah, Sageworth started out as Sageworth and Drums, and people always kind of were confused by that name, so we just call it Sageworth. And that was a line from a poem that uh, a friend of ours had written. So, yeah, you know, those were the days that uh, this was late 60s into the 70s, and it was uh, it was a great time to be playing music, you know. According to what I read, you're one of the first art majors at Georgetown. What what attracted you to pursue, you know, I mean, you could have probably done anything, but why why art exactly? Well, um, it turned out to be a real good idea for me, actually. But um, I, I wanted to go to Georgetown for journalism, for writing. I wanted to uh, be a writer of some sort. I wasn't sure what. And I had gotten advanced placement English at Loyola and so, and also advanced placement history. So those credits were supposed to carry over, but for some reason the English didn't. And so I wound up taking freshman English. And then at the end of the freshman year, the administration said, oh, wait a minute, you were supposed to have this credit. And so they said, I didn't have to take any more English courses. And I, at some point, I, it dawned on me that I could be a writer no matter what I was a major in. And, and art seemed like a, a very cool kind of thing 
I grew up in a creative family. <clears throat> my mother was a copy director at an advertising agency, and my stepfather was the art director. And so, you know, and being an only child, I, my my creativity was was definitely, you know, encouraged, if not uh, demanded, <laughs> you know, and. Uh, and so it, it just seemed like a natural thing to do. And, and as it worked out, um, the dean of the college was a sculptor, and I became the sculpture major around that time. So I got to know him. And at Georgetown, you were supposed to take four years of, of theology or philosophy, you know, whatever combination or however that was supposed to go. And he he said, you know, he let me drop that requirement and just take art courses for the rest of my my two years there at Georgetown. So it uh, it worked out well for me that way. I went from freshman first semester getting, I think, a 2.2 to getting, if not a 4.0, close to it as I graduated. That's and so, awesome. you know, it was strange, you know, because I got to Georgetown and I was absorbing the alienation that was in the air or something. I don't know what it was, but I really wanted to go to Berkeley after I had already gone to Georgetown. It was like, wait, I want to go to Berkeley. That's where the happening is, you know? And this was, uh, you know, late 66. So it, uh, uh, fortunate for me, I didn't have the grades to transfer. And, uh, and you know, the rest of my path at Georgetown came out well you know it's funny when I was a freshman at Georgetown my my freshman dorm had the juniors as the kind of monitors for the hall and uh, Bill Clinton was one of the monitors in my in my dorm really yeah and also in his class was a good friend of mine um, a fellow player and Bill Danoff who wrote Take Me Home Country Roads and mm. Afternoon Delight. <laughs> so, you know, and he has a nice house in Georgetown. Yeah, you know, it was it was actually a good place to be, uh, Washington in, in those days, because it was cosmopolitan enough, yet small town enough that you could kind of have a scene, you know, that uh, and you could pretty much know all the people in it. And there were some really good bands playing other than uh, Sageworth. How hard was it for you to learn guitar? And were you more drawn to solo or do you just want to be a rhythm player? Well, you know, when I was inspired to get a guitar, I was 15. And uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure I had that concept in mind, whether to play lead or rhythm. I didn't. I don't think I even knew that there were such things. When I when I went for my first guitar, in fact, I you know I thought I should get a four string guitar because really there's only four fingers to to fret with. Mm -hmm. So you know I had a lot to learn, uh, but luckily I had some good friends that were a little bit ahead of me in learning how to play. My friend John Zambetti, who was the Malibu's basically, and uh, it. Uh, but I got the guitar and I got a Kingston Trio songbook that had pictures of the chords. I think I got a Mel Bay book as well, an Oscar Brand book, you know, and then learned how to play Drunken Sailor <laughs> as the first song. <laughs> it, and spent that summer, my birthday's in the middle of the summer, in July, and so I had the summer to 
go to that place where you're learning and you're experiencing it and you're smelling this new guitar. And it was just, a, it was a heady time. Every, every night I would, uh, my grandmother and I would sit in the living room and watch the Steve Allen show, which was on every night in New York at 11 o'clock. It was like, not, you know, because he started the, the Tonight Show, but he had his own show at this point. And uh, for whatever reason, I associate those things with me learning how to make the chords and for my fingers to learn those things to do with sitting there with my grandmother watching Steve Allen. I think it's amazing. You're one of the, I think the third person has come on the show who said that they were inspired to play guitar from the Kingston Trio uh, with John Stewart and all those guys. I, 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 I find that fascinating personally. Well, you know, I think it's our generation. There was like this folk boom that happened as we were just coming of age, 10 or 11, you know, in 59, I guess, Tom Dewey was the hit and that was kind of ignited the folk craze. But uh, yeah, you know, it, they, they were melodic and they had uh, had guitars, and, you know, and then of course the Beatles came and, and knocked it all out of whack. Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, I have a funny story with John Stewart. I was at the Musicians Union in 1978 when Magnet and Steel was doing its thing. And John Stewart walked up to me, not the guy on TV, you know, the the real John Stewart, and uh, introduced himself. And I said, of course, I know who you are. You know, I told him, like, I learned how to play guitar from your songbook, you know. And so he said, well, that's great. You know, I... I took your album to the president of my label and said, I want my album to sound like this. And could you introduce me to your drummer and could you introduce me to Lindsay? And so, and he, then he told me how much he loved my song, Hot Summer Nights. And so I said, of course, you know, I'll introduce you to Lindsay. And so then he went on to make that record that Gold was the big song from. Ah, yes. and, it, and it happened to be on the charts. At the same time as my song, Hot Summer Nights, as performed by the group Night, they had kind of the hit version of that song. And uh, it sounds so similar on the radio. It was just, I was embarrassed a number of times by saying, oh, turn that up. It's my song. And then, no, it's the lights go down. But yeah, John was a a real nice guy. And uh, I was happy to consider him a friend. I think it's Even unquestionable. Though. Greenback Dollar is a damn good song. Oh, I yeah. Hear, I hear it quite often um, on Sirius XM when I'm driving around. It's just, you just stop and yeah. listen. It's a great, great track. Yeah. And I think Hoyt Axton wrote that song, if mm. I'm not mistaken. That's, yeah, no, those Kingston Trio songs uh, are, you know, they still, I still listen to the Kingston Trio, you know, so it's uh, a lifelong passion and 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 so i think it's natural that people my in my peer group probably uh, had some influence from them but also with lindsey when i worked with him it was kingston trio and uh, beach boys Mm. and of course growing up in new york the beach boys were the uh, the exotic flavor as opposed to the local four seasons which one of my absolute best friends brian wilson i think is I think in his top three heroes, um, without a question. Yeah, no, Brian, uh, you know, you've got to be proud that he's still alive and uh, making music. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it, uh, his he, for whatever reason he had the the touch for melody and for conception of 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 recording, you know, and that's what I think we picked up on. And, and Lindsay and I would often discuss, you know, well, what would Brian do? How would that go? Mm-hmm. You know, and and then when he was living in the Palms District of L.A. <clears throat> He used to go to this restaurant called Chef's, which was kind of a, you know, kind of a, you know, a New York style deli kind of place. And uh, and Brian used to eat there regularly. And so we would always try to go, do you think he'll be there? You know, we'll kind of time it, see if we can, this of course, before either of us had met him. Yeah, you know, and then I did some shows with the Beach Boys in the late 80s. And uh, Brian was actually performing with him then, not the late 80s, this was 1980. Um, and uh, he was, you know, he was like wonderfully present part of the time. And then part of the time, you know, he looked at you with a blank stare, you know, who are you? And, you know, I was, you know, had, the first day was great. And then the next day I went up to him and I, you know, I, I dedicated one of my albums to you, Brian. And, and he's like, oh, who are you? And I was like, yeah, I'm the, I'm the opening act. Remember me from yesterday? But yeah, I actually got to be kind of friends with Dennis through the last few years of his life. And he was a really sweet guy, too, when he was sober, <laughs> which unfortunately... It didn't happen all that often. So Sageworth, obviously, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this. Sageworth and drums, and from what I've been able to track down, uh, seems like it was a pretty groovy band. Uh, you can find a good copy of uh, Red, White, and Drums on YouTube, which I saw earlier. Uh, how did the band come together, and how long did you guys stay together? Well, it's funny you should ask, um, because I was just actually writing about that the other day. As I said, the Malibus matriculated together to Georgetown and maintained the Malibus name for a while until kind of the middle of 67 when it sort of, let's get a hipper name time happened. And we chose this obscure phrase from a friend of ours, poetry. And it was from the inland printer comes the dilemma of Sageworth and drums. And so it was like, oh, Sageworth and drums, that would be cool. And actually, the first time we wrote it, it was three words, and then it became Sageworth and drums. And so uh, that continued through college um, until, uh, well, until, you know, 73, actually. But but it as it became Sageworth of lore, as it were, it was a day in October of 67 when uh, Ralph Damon, who was the bass player for the band, brought in this young co-ed who he had been doing some shows with. And it was a girl named Annie McClune. And so Annie just brought this whole new dimension to the band. As we, during those years, we were kind of very influenced by on one side, Jefferson Airplane. On the other side, Buffalo Springfield. We kind of, mm. we used to call it Jeffalo Springplane. 
<laughs> and so, you know, and then it evolved in 68 or so. I had been writing more and more songs and tried to get them into the band. Meanwhile, John Fambetti, who was the leader and the lead guitar player for the band from Days of the Malibus, decided he was going to go into pre-med. And so he really didn't have time to rehearse as we were trying to learn these new songs. And it was just like, okay, John, you know, come and jam when you can, but I'll take over now. And that's kind of when I kind of took over the band and Annie and I kind of directed it for the next few years. We did uh, those demos in Red, White and Blues it was, uh, you know, also known as America. And, uh, you know, we fell into that time. The time was to be uh, topical. It was comment on what's going on in the world and mm -hmm. how we felt there were it was a time of social unrest obviously the late 60s and 68 when you know king and kennedy both got killed and you know all of all of the the war and the protests yeah. and everything going on it was hard to avoid that it we played at a number of those protests. There was one at the Washington Monument where we were supposed to, it was like an all night concert. We were supposed to go on about 1 a.m. And we hurried up to make it to the to the show, to the venue, which was outdoors around the Washington Monument. And we were made to wait until literally 5.30 or 6 in the morning to do our set. But uh, there was a fortunate part of that, and that NBC News was filming this event at that precise time. And so we got on the, uh, the NBC News the next night, John Chancellor saying, and the band that be began it all was still playing when the sun came up, <laughs> which was like, it, you know, I'm not sure who wrote his copy on that, but uh, it, was not, it was not the case. And another weird part about that particular show was the stage was set up and the front of the stage, the proscenium was lined with a hedge that was about maybe three feet you know, thick and uh, exactly at stage height. And it was kind of in the twilight dawn hours that our lead singer, Jack Burkhart, was out there trying to sing face to face with some young girls in the front. And he stepped out on the edge and just slipped and disappeared. It was hilarious. It was this great, this great moment of, uh, you know, through the years, there's been gigs where one or two people have fallen off the stage in some of these gigs that we've done. But uh, yeah. if the drummer is on a riser and he sets up too far back on the riser and he starts it rocking and all of a sudden, whoops, you know, where'd Tom go? Kind of thing, yeah. So, but those were the great days. I mean, that whole era where we were living together, we were writing together, we were making the music as this unit and uh, all for one and one for all kind of thing. Everybody bringing their best to it. Those were really golden years. Not to mention, of course, the early years with the Malibus were golden in a different way and the kind of finding out who you are and and the discovery of the newness of, you know, being on stage and doing what we were doing, mm -hmm. you know, those were, those were great times as well. 
And, you know, of course, that's what the song Hot Summer Nights was written from, that inspiration of that camaraderie that uh, you develop when you're in a band, you know? Mm. So one day, obviously, Sageworth is no more. Uh, what inside you felt the need to get to L.A. and pursue that dream of solo work? Oh, well, you know, you had to go to L.A., I think, for me anyway. You know, it comes from those early days of the Beach Boy inspirations and the music that was coming out of L.A. was always this attraction to me. And um, I'd say it was... Late 1970, when Linda Ronstadt came to D.C. to play the, the cellar door, and she was a favorite of ours, of course. We were playing at a club called the Apple Pie the night before she began her, I think you had to play five nights there, six nights. So it was, you know, you're there for a week. And so she came into town and to check out the place and came into this club where we were playing to have dinner. And, and she liked what we were playing, invited us to come sit down with her. We got to know her and her band. Her, her band, I think, it might not have been that first time, but her band through the years included Glenn Fry and Don Henley, who, of course, became the Eagles. And we... We hung out for a week. We got to be good friends. Her fiddle player and tour manager was a guy named Chris Darrow. Chris really liked our band. He wanted to produce us. He said, come to L.A. and we can make a record. You know, and Half of the band thought that was a great idea, and the other half thought it was too risky. Hmm. And the compromise of that made us move to Boston for the next couple of years. But I had always kept in touch with Chris through the years. During that, tan that time was also when Graham Parsons and Emmylou Harris recorded Hearts on Fire, my first you know, break in the music business. Mm -hmm. So I had that as a credit when I decided to move out there was when Emmylou was about to do her first record. So I felt like it was a good time to do that, to be able to have someone I know there and and Chris had said I could come stay with him. So that, uh, you know, that was where it came from. Sageworth finally broke up because of the factions in it. You know, everyone started blaming everyone else for the, for the lack of what we considered to be what we needed to have, the success. I mean, we were doing pretty well up in Boston. We were, but we were not, the deals we were getting offered either weren't right or, you know, just didn't, you know, we got close to deals with Warner Brothers, with uh, Mercury Records, and uh, with a couple of production companies. But ultimately, either they passed or we thought they wanted too much and we could do better, that kind of stuff. Hmm. It was, uh, you know, and then the, the disillusion, I had California on my mind from that time on. So when I moved out there, I wound up staying with Chris and wound up going to England for a month with him playing as his accompanist. Hmm. During that time, I met a, a man from United Artists Records over there named Andrew Lauder. And Andrew, two years later, would be the man who would see me play at the Troubadour 
and offered me a deal. And that kind of set off my, my, you know, recording career. So with that, we enter one of the most, uh, pretty much one of the most spectacular areas of your life with your first album, Fundamental Role. Uh, I got to start with my first question. Uh, the myth that is Lindsey Buckingham, how did that introduction come about and what was your first impression of meeting him? Yeah, the man, the myth, the legend. Um, I had been doing demos at a, at a studio called Sound City, which is now a famous place in mm-hmm. Van Nuys thanks to Dave Grohl. And when it came time to find a producer, the engineer who I'd been working with there, a guy named Dwayne Scott, suggested the Buckingham Knicks. And I was like, well, who is that? Is that, you know, not Don Nicks, the Southern rocker, who is Buckingham Knicks? And he said, well, listen to this and describe that. Oh, there was Fleetwood Mac. Okay. But they're trying to keep their brand as it were outside of Fleetwood Mac and so they heard my material and they liked it Um, I got to meet Lindsay the first time he was doing an overdub on uh, secondhand news I don't know if you remember that song by Fleetwood Mac but they have these harmonic parts over the if you listen closely the very high notes or harmonics that he played on the acoustic guitar and he was actually doing that overdub when i walked into the studio when he was working on sunset and so you know it was casual i got to go hang out with him over at his house like the next day or something and uh, we hit it off musically okay was describing as far as kingston trio and you know and beach boys and He's a little bit younger than I am, maybe like six months or nine months or something. And of course, my middle name is Lindsay. So somehow it was like, oh, well, okay. But yeah, in a lot of ways, as I got to know him, we had a lot of parallels. And we would always make these kind of jokes about growing up together on separate coasts, (laughs) even to the point of the bands that we had before we were in that present state. His band was called Fritz. Yeah. And he and Stevie were kind of leading that. And Sageworth was very much me and Annie doing the same thing on the other coast. And in fact, Annie's birthday falls within like two weeks of Stevie's. Hmm. So it's also, you know, you know, the cosmic vibes that come around when things start to click. And yeah, you know, I found that uh, he had a, a level of kind of meticulousness that was uh, a, a lesson for me to learn because I've always been more of a, you know, kind of intuitional and kind of seat of your pants kind of creativity. And so in a lot of ways, I felt like I related to Stevie more on that level. And so, you know, and of, of course, it goes with that saying that I wanted to relate to Stevie and that, uh, you know, of course, also was one of the uh, tides that directed my career. Yeah. That whole song about her having her sing on it, it was magical in so many ways, you know. So fundamental role is considered by music historians uh, that I've been reading to be one of the most, probably one of the most inspired albums of the early seventies, and definitely a staple of the genre that they know um, as California rock. Uh, 
talk about how the album came together and what were your feelings you had when it was completed? Well, that being the first album, of course, it has its own special place in uh, my personal lore. Um, I had been writing songs since the time I was maybe, I had a guitar when I was 15 and by the time I was 16, I had started writing songs. And that is something that never stopped. So I considered myself a songwriter. And through the years, certain songs will seem to be more, more better to listen to than other songs, you know. And so that kind of sieves a lot of the stuff that a writer, I've, I mean, I've written so many songs, it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, even just trying to type them all into my computer, I, uh, I never get very far. It's too daunting. You know, it's really a couple of thousand songs that I've written. So certainly not by the time I did Fundamental Role, but I had a, a good supply of songs to pick from. And so that's in many ways the uh, the culmination, the uh, the budding of the of the flower of my my pay your dues years, I guess you'd have mm -hmm. to say. And and so yeah, it's very special, especially because okay, so I I had a band called I think at the time that we were called the Wheels. And we did a hood night at the Troubadour in February of 76. Uh, six out of the seven songs were ones that I had written, but I only really sang one of the songs. And at the end of the performance, that was when I got offered the deal from United Artists. And, and it was very pointed to the fact that, no, we don't want the band, we want you. And so that took me by surprise because I really wasn't trying to be the front man at all of the band. But at the same time, it was kind of what I had gone to California to do. And so here it was. And I could not refuse that. Having Lindsay and Stevie, whose talent I respected very much at this point by the time we got into the studio, having them kind of as my my cheer cheerleaders as well as kind of teachers in a lot of things it uh, I, you know i think i couldn't have asked for better and fundamental role if you're a stevie nicks fan yeah. so was i when i put put that together you know it's uh we're, we're going to talk about stevie now just in a second but i will say this if you ever do listen to buckingham nicks their two-part harmonies are not many people can do that Lennon McCartney, oh, yeah. you know, Cantrell and Lane, maybe, but yeah, Bucky yeah, and Everly and Brothers, maybe. Everly Brothers, exactly. But uh, yeah. that's my next question is basically, you know, you've got Lindsay as your producer. You inevitably meet um, the lady that's known as Stephanie Nix, with her being invited to lay down your backing vocals. Tell us about what it was like to meet her for the first time. Well, first of all, I had to figure out which one was Stevie and which one was Lindsay. Um, you know, I described that episode with Lindsay. That was the first time one-on-one -on -one I kind of met with them. I sort of met them after they had agreed to the project at a Fleetwood Mac concert in Santa Barbara. And, uh, and so she was doing her thing the day I saw her, even it was in the daylight. I was, uh, I was noticing what was going on when Stevie was doing her thing, uh, very much so. And 
then meeting her and sort of getting to know her, which believe it or not, she expressed this vulnerability about, well, when, when I took her out the first time, I picked her up at this apartment on Olympic Boulevard. And I had, I said, I have to say, Stevie, I think you're the, one of the most wonderful singers. And she was like, really? Do you think so? I mean, it was like that kind of response. And I was like, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you must know this. It was a wonderful thing for me having kind of a, a great appreciation for female vocalists and and strong women in general. Uh, Stevie seemed to embody both of those characteristics, and she was a creative person, which was also appealing, you know. And she's Stevie, what the fuck, you know. I mean, she's become this icon to millions. And and deservedly so, but I kind of knew her when in a lot of ways, and it, it I loved that girl a lot, and I like her a lot still. But you know, she can't help but be changed by the adulation and, and what it has to do to you on some level. Did you watch her Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, induction? I did not. Did I miss anything? <laughs> no, I was just, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, just, uh, I guess it was just said, it, um, it was, a, I guess, a long time coming. So, well, yeah, and she's in there twice now, and that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, I think she deserves every accolade and everything that she's got. She's a wonderfully nice person down deep inside, you know. And I but, was uh, lucky to be one of the first ones to get to collaborate with her that way. Uh -huh. which was great it was great you know mm. i mean Lindsay, of course but you know i during my i had like a month of trying to court stevie and you know with varying success and at, at one point she said to me you know you're so much like Lindsay." <laughs> it's like now, is that a good thing or is yeah, that a bad that, thing? That was my next question. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> yeah. And it was a funny, it's just a funny moment that I never forgot. And, you know, and after that, it was like, yeah, I think it'd be better all around for all around harmony of the project for me to mm. not pursue this, this desire that I'm having. And just so, write some good songs about it, which, you know, of course, is the story of my life, this new album is all about Pamela DeBar, mm. or at least my feelings when I was trying to win her favor. So with Fundamental Role, uh, your next album, uh, Not Shy, considered your biggest, most commercially successful album in your career. Uh, what are your best memories of recording that particular album? Through the, uh, the looking glass backwards, it's hard not to... Uh, remember the recording of uh, Magnet and Steel and when we were doing that and how cool that was. But at the time, you know, as we were going through it, everything for me, I never, it never came easy for me to be the singer. And so I was always so focused on trying to do that right that lots of times that's my experience of most of these sessions when, when I have to do that. One of the strange memories from 
recording of Not Shy was, okay, given that I'm trying to uh, impress Stevie on most levels of my living at that point, she played the song for me that she said Fleetwood Mac didn't want to do. And it was it's called Sisters of the Moon. And of course, here I seized the opportunity. And I said, well, that's, I think it's a great song. Let me Let me perform it. Let me do it. So for that tour of 1977, you know, the supporting fundamental role, I played Sisters of the Moon in every set that I played. And I was, had the, the band that we did that tour with was the band for the next album. So mm. there was a certain tightness that we developed and there was a certain, you know, we kind of knew what we were doing. And we started to do the basic track for Sisters of the Moon, and Lindsay came walking in, and he was like, "What, what you know? What is this song?" Like, oh, yeah, I didn't tell you. I want to do the song that Stevie played for me. And you know, he gave me kind of a look, and I was like, mm. "You know, I think it's probably not a good idea. Why don't you go home and write a song?" And this was going to be the big climax song of the album because, you know, when you have the two sides of the album, the second side always ended with the big stirring song. And, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I went home. It was the middle of August. I was thinking about those days with the Sageworth and with, you know, the Malibus. And sat down and started playing three chords, however that comes to you. You know, and by the next morning, I had a new song called Hot Summer Nights, and we recorded it that morning, which accounts for the fact that on the original, it has the, kind of, the groove is a very laid back groove. But if you don't expect it to be too fast, that, that laid back groove is really good. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, and crazily enough, that song has been the most covered song I've ever written. Multiple versions around the world, uh, you know, Japan, Germany, Sweden, France. In fact, there's a new French version of it with the French lyrics that this guy wrote. I'm about to come out. This guy Didier Cor, who got in touch with me, and and so and it, it's uh, you know, of course, it was the hit for Night, and we did another version of it on one of the Malibu's albums. So yeah, I guess you know if Lindsay says go write a song you best take it to heart okay campers we are going to take a little bit of a break this gives you a chance to refresh your drink go to the bathroom or do some of those famous stretches Clouseau style out with the bad air in with the good out with the bad air in with the good give us a chance to spotlight a friend of the show and our sponsor and we will be right back Looking for a new podcast? Check out the Infectious Groove podcast. My name is Russ, and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle. Every Monday, the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jams, so you'll always have new music to check out. The Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear. On top of that, we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking, discussing, and sharing music. We also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. Today's episode is brought to you by Fulton, a modern brand of arch support. 
Fulton launched the most comfortable, supportive, and sustainable insole on the planet. Fulton believes wellness starts from the ground up and that the feet are the foundation of our bodies. Fulton insoles offer comfortable arch support to align your body from head to toe, mitigating pain, providing comfort, and improving posture. Fulton is creating a world where the shoes we wear are actually good for our bodies, providing you with a sturdier foundation for a healthier future. Fulton is offering our listeners $10 off your next purchase at walkfulton.com. That's W-A-L-K-F-U-L-T-O-N.com by using the code PODCAST10. That's code PODCAST10 for $10 off at walkfulton.com. Check out the website to see how Fulton can support you. Hi, guys. I'm John. And I'm Frank. And we're the hosts of a general discussion comedy show out of Brooklyn, New York called The Basement Surge where every Monday we drop new episodes about all the different stuff we like, such as movies, video games, being a dad, basically anything that pops in our heads. The Basement Surge is available to listen to on every podcast platform there is, including Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Basement Surge. Check out our official website at www.thebasementsurge.com for more info. Of upcoming episodes and all the magic that we come up with. All right? And that's it. Anything else? Tune in. Welcome back to the Derek Duvall Show. See, deep breathing can be fun. I've been doing a lot of meditation lately. Just five minutes here, ten minutes there. I have our first guest, Mr. Victor Parishin, to thank for that. Did you know that if you chant the word OM... It has a powerful effect on your body. It can clear your sinuses, and it has been shown to set the heart into regular beat and bring the old blood pressure down. Give it a go. What have you got to lose? Anyways, back to the show. Here is the conclusion of my interview with music legend Walter Eakin. We're going we're to get to the big one. Magnet and Steel is a song that has been married to your name for well over many, many, many decades when I told people that I was having on the show, those three words immediately preceded your name. Tell us about the origin of that song. Um, it all stems from a night uh, when we were recording a song from my first album. It, the, the name of that song was Tunnel of Love. And uh, it was in which, by the way, predates the Springsteen song with a name <laughs> kind of like that by a couple of years at least. And it uh, was the night Stevie was doing her background vocals, which I would recommend if you haven't listened to them, put on headphones and listen to that banshee, crazy yelp thing that she does. And I was, you know, I was visibly shaken when she was doing it in the studio. I could not get her out of my head and I had been not so slowly falling for her as this project you know, took on its, you know, its rhythm, as it were. I had been working on a song in that 50s beat, that stroll beat, that double snare hit, every other beat. So I had the, the framework of the song going, but the lyrics that I had been working with were just not up to it, and they weren't inspiring me at all. I was living in Pomona, and so the drive from Van Nuys to Pomona was about 50 miles. I was on the Hollywood freeway very late at night, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., and this, this Lincoln Continental with 
candy apple paint with the diamond window with the fringe around it with the lights underneath it pulled in front of me you know it's just basically the two of us on the freeway at that hour <laughs> and it was uh, for some reason i looked at the license plate and the license plate said not shy mm-hmm. <laughs> which for whatever reason i took that as a message i was couldn't get that out of my head. It was because I was when I was, you know, working up the courage to ask Stevie out and to really kind of, as they say, go for it with Stevie. And it just all came together by the time I got home. And the, the magnet part of it just came out of the air. I guess I, you know, that was the uh, the metaphor I mm-hmm. I chose, um, feeling that. Um, you know, unable to control this this feeling I had drawing so, me to her. It was the night I finished the song, mm. and uh, I was amazingly able to have Stevie sing along on it, and that uh, I think just was the icing on the top of the cake. You hear that song now. What do you feel after all these years? I mean, do you, do you still get goosebumps? Do you, or is it just like, uh, you know? Well, no, never that the latter there. I, you know, I'm not sure I get goosebumps every time, but I always, uh, it's always a thrill, of course. Um, when I'm at the, the supermarket with my daughter, sometimes it comes on and, you know, she would, this is when she was younger, she'd come running up and go, Daddy, you know, it's you. Like, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> um, but also I've been in, you know, stores when it's come on and, I just kind of walk around and sometimes I see people singing along with it and, you know, probably getting the lyrics a little bit wrong, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's my surrealistic life. I have sometimes yeah. things like that sort of pop into my life. And the thing is I've never stopped doing music through the years. I always maintained that I got another one to do. I've done 14 solo albums and I've done, you know, three albums with the Brooklyn Cowboys and I think four with the Malibus. And I've recorded with a band called the Burritos. And so, you know, I've been able to do a lot that I've loved to do. And, uh, and Magnet and Steel very much uh, opened that door. And, and it was very uh, uncalculating. It was, I wanted to do a 50s, sounding song and when we recorded that bunch of songs for not shy for whatever reason that sort of bubbled to the top people would listen to it and they go oh put that on again you know the (laughs) people from the record label and stuff and so it was obvious kind of that there was something some magic in those tracks and uh, i do writer's nights here in nashville and i'll play magnet and steel of course undoubtedly people will come up to me and tell me how much they love the song, which is great. I've been told I've started my family to your song. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I've heard the, I've heard the opposite. I've heard that, you know, I lost my virginity to your song. Like, wow. Okay. Too much. Have you ever heard Sade? Um, She says the same thing. People, fans come to her, say the almost exact same thing. And it's so bizarre, she says, when people say that. It is. It's very strange. But the strangest thing yet is that the the guy that comes up and goes, boy, I really love that song. Tell me, who did that song? 
<laughs> Hello. But that's 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 an example of how serialistic my life is. It's great. I have you know no complaints. What what was it like shooting the music video? Because I've watched that at least three times in the last week. Um, it, it it just looks fun. Yeah, Magnum Steel. That was really fun to to, to dress up in the fifties thing and this, you know, do the stroll and, and all of that part of it. There's a part in it where we had done that uh, on stage part of it, and the, the smoke machines were this very heavy oil-based smoke machines. So it was making really weird things happen with my hair and. Everything felt kind of greasy, and uh, but they had whatever makeup they had put on me for that that one scene. My grandmother always used to make fun of me when she would see that side <laughs> part. What's with all the makeup? You know, I didn't know. Hey, whatever. When when, when the album's out, you're swept up. I mean, obviously, there was huge success that came with it. What's it like to be in the '70s and just? Riding the tide of fame. I mean, is that is it just so surreal, or is it it's just something you just look back and you're like, wow? Well, yeah, of course. Uh, it, it, it in many ways it was kind of the culmination of what you felt like you worked for. Mm-hmm. You know, I graduated from Georgetown in '70, and I got the record deal in '76. So there was a lot of five nights or five sets a night, night mm-hmm. along the way, and it it feels it felt really just like the right thing if that makes any sense it's like mm-hmm. well of course this is supposed to happen and so the surrealistic element of it is almost comes from looking back at it because at the time you tell yourself well this is what it's all about this is what you've worked for this is supposed to be this way mm-hmm. and as through that to be able to try and hold on to the the core of uh, inspiration that sort of drove you to that point in the first place that gets a little trickier mm-hmm. because you're kind of almost indulging you know it was a self-indulgent time very much so and I happened to be around some of the people who were doing a lot of that mm-hmm. and you know, Fleetwood Mac was really the biggest band in the world in a lot of ways at, at that point, 77 through 78, 79, and 80 even. I think uh, I got more to see that that part of it when I would hang out with them and go to some of their shows mm-hmm. than I did so much when I was doing my touring part of it because I was mostly opening act and you know not a lot of not a big budget to to make all the magic happen that seemed to happen in those days but i mean there were times when cbs as the record was doing well we did a gig at the uh, the cotton bowl called the texas jam that was like in the middle of july or early in july 78 where they sent us limos you know to take us to I think the next gig was in uh, what what my Atlantic City mm-hmm. at some casino or something down there, and 
you know, it was great in those days. It was great. I I had a lot of uh, fun experiences that, um, hmm. you know, and some of them I can even talk about. Which, <laughs> <laughs> or you know, it's better not to talk about some of the other ones. I yeah, guess. I understand. But but you know, I have you know, I got pretty close to Stevie there very briefly, yeah. and so that's a wonderful memory in itself. And but the enduring memory of hanging out with Lindsay and those guys is great. It 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 is. It uh, it's just hard to stay connected to their world mm-hmm. for the rest of us um, and so you know you take yeah. it in in the doses and take it when it comes and it's, so it's nice. you see magnet steel is used in like films i I've, of course one that always comes to my head is paul thomas anderson's boogie nights uh were yeah. you approached for the use of that song or is it just uh, done through oh of course yeah of course in fact uh, new line cinema which did that film also did a film called Overnight Delivery with Paul Rudd and Reese Witherspoon early in their careers. It's kind of a cheesy movie, and Charlize Theron is in it as well. Um, But it's, you know, it's kind of a fluffy kind of movie. But So we were negotiating with them because they wanted to use it. It's in the script. The song is the, the song of this couple. Charlene and Paul Rudd as they go away to separate colleges. She, they come back together at Christmas and they're in the front seat of the car and she's giving him this present and the present is this heart on a string, on a, on a chain, I mean. And you go, oh, okay, that's nice. And then she lifts up for, you know, one that she's wearing and she, and she goes, no, don't you remember our song? And she sticks a cassette in, in the car. And it starts playing me singing, and and then they're they're magnetic hearts, and so you see the hearts click together, and you know. It's, it's, but then they used it two two times more in the film, and found it was more cost efficient to get Matthew Sweet to re-record it, mm. and so there's this version that he does for the other two times you hear it in the song. Kind of funny, mm. but there's that but it was also in the first deuce bigelow which i always like to say it's the love theme from deuce bigelow <laughs> it, uh, it's the part uh, where he falls in love with the woman with the wooden leg and she's uh, laying down and he pulls her leg on i have not seen that one oh. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> that's a good version the later sequels aren't as good uh-huh. the first one's good so and then that was in this is 40 as well uh, it was in a, a Toyota commercial in like 2006 or something, maybe. So, so how it, does that happen? It, they just call you up randomly and say, hey, we want to use your song? Yeah, they do. Um, they have, you have to negotiate the, the usage fee and the, uh, the royalties if there are going to be any. So, yeah, that's it's always good to have someone who knows the business side of the record business on your side for that. I am uh, woefully, you know, mm-hmm. ignorant of a lot of that stuff, and I should probably. But I've had people that I've trusted, and I don't think I've been burned yet, except by one accountant mm-hmm. who left me in the lurch for like ten years of of equipment, whatever 
deductions that he had given me that um Lindsay, of course one of the greatest guitar players stevie nicks one of the most prolific performers what do you take away from those years that you spent with them Lindsay and i used to connect on a lot of levels of understanding and you know even just trivial things of of silly things that we remember from growing up and stuff that i think forms this bond that is always kind of there when he comes to town we'll go out to dinner or something and it's like no you know someone from your family or something almost in that way and stevie you know it's hard to not admire everything that she's had and she's gotten and in some ways it's it's a kind of a fortress around her that makes it difficult mm-hmm. to casually have any kind of anything to do with her even to see her when she performs you know you're in a room with a bunch of people and you wait till she turns your way and try to grab that attention for as long as you can get it but you know i mean of course i have no regrets over that I, you know and it would be nice even to work with them again at some point if if they're up for it and, and the situation calls for it yeah. and i think uh, there's been a lot of uh, misinformation about her through the years of different things but she certainly has uh, come up roses in a lot of ways i think mm. i think uh, you know the the troubles of a few years that she had i i don't think many people even think about anymore at least like to think so yeah. but you know and now recently it's this it's incredible how themes don't really change as far as you know is lindsay not in Fleetwood Mac because it's stevie doesn't want him in there and all that and yeah it's hard to know even in the time that I spent with them together making that record, it, uh, what they have goes back a long ways and it runs really deep. I know Stevie on one level certainly feels like Lindsay is the love of her life. And so why it has turned to the opposite and what, you know, I don't pretend to know. But what I, you know, I mean, what uh, a great memory of uh, hanging out with great people and a lot of times that were really fun and a lot of uh, experiences that uh, I can carry with me for my whole life. So you had three albums you released between 79 and 83, which are Hi-Fi, Last Stroll, and Wild Exhibitions. And then it seems like you took a break from music. Um, What did you do during those years? Well, I'd like to say I took a break from music, but the fact is it's more like music took a break from me for whatever reason. Um, I got married. That uh, happened in 1984, and our son was born in 85. My wife had the, uh, the job, as it were, and so I stayed home a lot of the time with my son, and, you know, that was sufficient on a certain level. Uh, we right after we we finished uh, the wild exhibition album at that was I, I okay i'm going to rewind just a little bit i i had a six album deal with columbia records and i wound up doing four 
the last one was the last stroll. Then took a year or so to get a deal together with Tom Petty's label, Backstreet Records. And that album was called Wild Exhibitions. And that came out in 83, I would say. Um, the cheerleader on the back is my wife. And so we got married within that following year. And so that kind of was happening, but I was playing and I was writing and we had started to record what was going to be the next album at a studio called Mad Dog in Venice. When we felt like if we got it off the ground, if we got enough of it accomplished, then we can interest someone in, in getting it and, you know, and supplying the rest of the money for the finishing. Well, the funds kind of ran out and what happens when money runs out, people start biting at one another. And, mm. and so my manager at the time and I kind of came to a parting of the ways shortly after that. I mean, he, he supplied most of the funding for that record as it were. Mm. And so those tapes, I carried with me and, and that became the lost album, which was released in 1999, I think, hmm. or 19, no, 99 is alternative. Uh, I think it was 98, maybe 99, right around that time when I first moved to Nashville on a label called Renaissance records and was put out under the name, the lost album. And at the same time, I met a man named Robert Courage, who had a label called Red Steel Music in England, and he wanted to put it out. So he put that out over in England, and he also put out an album called The Meaning of Live, which was a live recording I had done at, uh, at Toronto, I think, in the El Macombo Club. Anyway, um, so yeah, so around 85, 86, the recording came to a halt. But on that album, you know, Jackson Brown, Christine McVie, Chris Darrow is on it, Lindsay is on it. Um, and Randy California plays on it as well. So it, it's really an interesting album, even though it doesn't have the polish maybe of, of some of the finished albums. Um, I started playing bass in the band Spirit. Uh, you know, got a line on you, Nature's Way. <laughs> I've started playing bass in 86 and played with them through 89 and that kept that going um in the early 90s i inherited the house i grew up in in queens moved my family back there and i began playing with uh, another page from the one hit wonders book a band called randy and the rainbows which mm. was kind of the last doo-wop record to crack the top 10 with that song denise you know that uh, Blondie actually did a cover of later on as Dennis. Um, so yeah, and that was around the time that a movie called The Night We Never Met came out. And that was actually the first movie that used Magnet and Steel in it. But again, it was a remake version of Magnet and Steel. So it was a very strange hmm. thing. This guy, Jeffrey Steele was the singer. So, but, you know, that was the beginning of the revival, I think, of Magnet and Steel. So I then I got to Nashville in 97 after New York is a wonderful place, but it's 
it's hard when you're not on top of it as far yeah. as money goes and making money. And it's a hard place to struggle. I'll put it that way. And people had been telling me how Nashville would be a great place to be. They love songwriters. I moved out here in 97, um, put out Alternative in 99, which was my first sort of collaboration album with a lot of the people I met down here. Um, the leftovers for that were put out a year or two after that called Apocalypse on Now. And then I think it was 2010 when I struck a deal with a label in New Jersey called Spectra Records, which was a kind of a shady thing, but I went ahead with it and they never followed through with the physical CDs, but it was on iTunes for a while. And that was... Uh, um, that was called Raw Elegance, <laughs> which is an anagram for my name. <laughs> Thanks to my son. My my son thought it up and I stole it from him. Um, but yeah, there was Alternative and Apocalypso Now was the one after that. That was kind of the leftovers from uh, from Alternative. 2017, I self-released an album called True Songs, which is still available out there. And then uh, this whole deal with Red Steel was revived uh, in March of 2010. He heard that the songs I had written, which turned into a concept album about me having an infatuation with Pamela DeBar. Hmm. And so it... Uh, he thought it was a great idea and a great album. And, you know, a year later in February of this year, he just released that. And they actually also say they're going to make a version, a vinyl version for record store day. So we'll see. I mean, you know, it's the record business. You have to take things with a grain of salt. But... Yeah. I asked a few people um, for some questions on Twitter, people who I told you, you were coming on to have some fan questions. And one of them stood out the most. And I have to ask, in 2009, apparently Dr. Dre sampled one of your songs, uh, "Hot Summer Nights," for an Eminem song. Is what, what did you what do you take away from that? <laughs> okay, you know, previously Eminem was just my favorite candy. First of all, now <laughs> I have a whole different meaning for the word. Yeah, but yeah, it was another one of these bizarre, weird in my weird surrealistic life. I got this call from the publishing company that holds had the publishing for Hot Summer Nights, saying I had to approve this song before it was released, meaning to release it like the next week. But they used my song and I have to approve it. But they wouldn't send me an MP3 because they were afraid I'd leak it to the world. Oh, yeah. And it turned out to be We Made You by Eminem. And I expected it to be a needle drop or a quote of the hook or the guitar hook. And it was really none of those things. It was based in my mind on the on the hit version, on the the night version, which makes more sense, I guess. And because it was in their key as opposed to my key. Mine's D minor and there's a G minor. And so, uh, you know, for all these reasons, I guess, I it, it picked it out of thin air. I, you know, I... It's crazy. It's, again, my crazy life. But they could have slipped up by me and I wouldn't have known the difference. It, you know, not the same as the John Stewart thing where gold was like hitting me in the face with right. my song. But 
you know, yeah, it, uh, they were upfront about it. And they said, uh, well, there's four other writers. And so I got one fifth of the <laughs> writer and publisher on that. That's and awesome. of course, one fifth of an Eminem record in 2009 was a heck of a lot. It, uh, the, the, the mailbox money was well appreciated <laughs> through those years. No, really. I mean, don't, it, don't it, you it call was, it the mailbox money? Well, yeah, in those days you get checks in the mail. No, they didn't. Uh, it wasn't all digital. I know it's yeah. hard to believe. Interesting. But, I've never uh, heard that before. It was, uh, it, you know, and I, I was scuffling along trying to make ends meet and trying to keep the faith of, with being what I feel I am, which is the songwriter and, uh, and everything else from there. I was, I was doing a lot of painting. I had a couple of painting exhibits through those years. I also had open heart surgery in 2014, the triple bypass, which uh, came out of left field when I was trying to get a new hip. <laughs> wow. And then I got the new hip shortly thereafter, and then they put up a billboard <laughs> with a picture of me and my guitar and said, hip replacements just got more hip. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now I'm an avatar of hip, hiptitude somewhere in Columbia, Tennessee. So my next question um, from the fans is one more, and it was basically, um, when you write a song, do you write the lyrics first and then the melody or vice versa? And my answer to that is yes, <laughs> which, which means it comes as it will. There is no set formula. I have practices and I have disciplines of you know, recording melodic ideas on my phone Sometimes they come accompanied by some kind of lyrical idea. Otherwise, sometimes I'll get this notion of this would be a great title for a song. This would be something I'd like to write a song about. Or my songwriter's head, which has you know, been developed through my entire life since I was 16, is always kind of churning songs and, and churning ideas and you know, not constantly, but, you know, certainly a number of times a day, I will either visit a song I'm working on, nudging it along, kind of thinking, oh, well, maybe this would be a good topic for the, these chords. Mm -hmm. Or, or you know, lots of times the best of them come together, actually. You know, when you sit down and you're just kind of inspired to play that C, S, and G chord in some way you've never played it before mm -hmm. and all of a sudden a song opens up in your head and those are the wonderful very fortunate times but yeah lots of times you know you keep a notebook of ideas of topics of what you you know the phrase that you want to stick in a song somewhere and you keep your mind open to the bigger picture i've done some more collaborating than i've ever done before since i moved to nashville and in that case it's good to have some ideas to throw back and forth when you're just starting out a project with someone, which I'm about to do with this woman. I've been writing with a woman named Beth Sass, uh, S -A -S -S, and uh, she and I have written probably 12, 13, 14 songs now. Wow. And it's fun, you know, it, it's co-writing is like dating you, you get together you see if it, you hit it off you get you know you like that part of you or you, you know it, it really is you feel one another out and if you get comfortable and 
able to trust and respect the other person, then, you know, often you can come up with something that's more than the sum of the parts. Um, but, uh, you know, songwriting is, you might, there might be songwriting books, there might be songwriting for idiots out there. And probably all the ideas they give you are good. But, like you know, that. really, it, it is yeah. something that the wonderful part of it is you make it up as you go along. You, mm -hmm. you know, whatever works for you is what's best. I, I think the most important things are to, when you get an idea, make sure you write it down or you record it when you get it because it flies away and then it never seems to be what it was. And then, uh, you know, to constantly sort of go at it. I find I'm often surprised, I often surprise myself by doing something that I would never have imagined I would do just because I sat down and fooled around and did it. You know, it's one of those kind of self-discovery things as well. And so the more you pay attention to it, the easier it is and the better I think the results are. I'm going to finish this up. Um, you said you've got, you're writing a book. You are um, working right now with another songwriter. Uh, are there any of the future projects in the works? Um, specifically, I think there are two or three more albums worth of songs that uh, this guy in England is talking about putting out. Um, the uh, kind of <clears throat> pushing along my painting career is also something I've been trying to do more and more of um, I had this whole series of the martyrs of rock and roll mm. because I wrote a song called R and RIP which was kind of a recounting of the the fateful ends of all the wonderful you know inspiring people of rock and roll for me the saints of rock and roll as it were and so uh, I had an exhibit down at Georgetown where I went to college and also uh, out in LA the Mr. Music Head Gallery, and it, you know, it was it was great to be able to uh, express that part of it after being, you know, making my art education, my art degree pay. I guess you have to say, my uh, my fine arts bachelor of fine arts that I've been carrying around since I graduated. When you do it, substitute teaching, do you do you teach art or is it? Um, on, on a good day, I do. As a substitute teacher, you really don't have much choice. Mm -hmm. uh, of, you know, you do if you don't want to work as much. But, but yeah, it, in fact, this year, it, it's, been a, it's been my other job for a while now because, well, through the school year, there's work for me there, whether or not I go out of town for two weeks for a tour or to do music or to, I need to not work because I'm doing late nights or whatever, it's up to you. And so it works great for me that way to have something of a regular paycheck in a world where royalty checks can fluctuate from quarter to quarter. And, uh, it, uh, and it keeps me, I think in a lot of ways it keeps me young, although I suppose in some ways it could make me old, depending on the classes that I have. But yeah, and I've only subbed in this one school for at least the last 15 years. So I've been there longer than most of the teachers anyway. And the kids know me across all, you know. The thing with a teacher is they only have a certain group of kids that they have for the whole year. 
and with me, I cut, I, you know, I sub for different classes and, you know, they have a class there in guitar and that's my favorite, of course, because I really do kind of know what I'm doing to some degree there. Um, so yeah, it, it's okay. It, it works all right. I had, uh, in the mid eighties, I had an extra career where I was an extra in a few movies. Mm. Out in LA, one was called Eight Million Ways to Die. Oh, I know that and, one. Yeah, Hal Ashby, it was uh, Jeff Bridges and Rosanna Arquette. They filmed it up in Malibu. You know, it, it's, a, it's a crazy checkered career that I've had. Yeah. Uh, certainly. You are uh, definitely a Renaissance man. There's no question about that. Well, I have, I have tried to be that. I have tried to be that. I've written screenplays. I've, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to do as many ways of expressing myself as I could think of. And, it, you know, and it makes for a satisfying life, I think, especially if you can manage to get paid to do what you really like to do. And sometimes you do and other times you don't. And that's what makes it tricky for the creative person to have a regular life, as it were, you know, to ask your family to, to suffer for your art is different than suffering for your art by yourself. So you have to, you know, have contingency plans, certainly. I'm but I've to... never really given it up, and I've I've been able to, you know, stay with it all these years. And that, that's very satisfying for me, and it's, it's great to be able to keep doing that. I'm hoping this COVID thing subsides enough that uh, the live shows come back strongly. I was supposed to do one April 3rd out in Jackson, Tennessee. It's one of these cavalcade of old guys, <laughs> cavalcade of stars playing their hits from years. I finished my interview with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what is the one thing that you would like to say to the people of Earth? I would say... Try to understand one another and be kind. That's good. I like that. Well, I think it's true. I think the more people could do that, we would uh, have less less bothersome times. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, Walter, thank you for coming on the Derek Duvall Show. This has been an absolute treat for me, and I know my fans, and thanks for so you know, generously giving me um, some of your time this Saturday afternoon. I know it's a nice day. I'm pretty sure out and the fact you chose this well, you know, means a lot. Thank you so much. Well, you know, nothing better than talking about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no I really do appreciate like. the interest. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, good luck with the show. You're doing great stuff, Derek. Thank you. Thank, thank you. And just like that, we come to the end of our show. I want to thank the amazing Walter Egan for taking the time out of his busy schedule to sit down and talk about his life with me. Like I said earlier, a truly, truly renaissance man. What a career. What a life. If you've not heard his music, I urge you to seek it out. We have some really great stuff coming up in the next few weeks, and I cannot wait for the next episode to drop. I promise you, it's incredible. Duval Nation, I want to talk to you. Do you know someone who has lived an extraordinary life? Share this person with me. I don't care how 
extraordinary it might be in terms of it may be small to you, it may be large to another person. If you think that person is special and has done something incredibly interesting with their life, share this person with me by sending a message on our social media or email me personally, Derek Duvall at DerekDuvallShow.com. I will take a look with my producers and hopefully we can get that person the recognition that they deserve. On that note, I want to say to you, Duvall Nation, be safe, be well, and for the love of all things holy, just get the vaccine. We are so close to seeing some semblance of normalcy again, and everyone needs to be doing their part. It's with that in mind that I want to leave you with a quote from my friend, Victor Parishin. Don't believe the lie that you cannot change the world. You can, and you are not alone. Nosda, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.